The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We have been uh, noting the past several weeks how the Apostle Paul has been setting forth the truth of the sufficiency of Christ. That there is no one and there is nothing outside of Christ that you need in order to have the hope of glory. The confident expectation of glory. And Paul has been doing this in various ways. In in verses 13 to 20, uh, we saw him list all sorts of descriptions of who Christ is. And by those descriptions, attempt to convince the Colossians, and of course, by extension, you and me, that we, in view of what a great Savior we have, ought not to look anywhere else other than him for the fullness of our redemption. Last week, we noted in verses 21 through 23 that, uh, that Paul taught us what we were apart from Christ and what we are now in Christ. Apart from him, we are estranged from God. We are enemies of God. In Christ, though, we are reconciled to God. And he went on to teach us what God is making us to be in Christ. In Christ, he is making us holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And then finally, he talked about our responsibility to persevere to the end, to continue to walk in the faith which we first received. Now, this morning, uh, Paul begins this next section by talking about himself. And that may seem a little strange when we have seen the focus being so much on Christ. But you'll understand as we, as we look at the passage. So let's read God's word this morning, beginning at verse 24. Colossians 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone, with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature or complete in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you that that by your grace, uh, we are a congregation that seeks to honor Christ by honoring his word and keeping it central to all that we do. 
We pray that by your Spirit, you would edify and instruct us through your word this morning, that you would correct us and challenge us through your word, that you would encourage and strengthen us through your word. May we be like those Thessalonian believers who, when they heard the word, they did not receive it as the word of man, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectively works in everyone who believes. May your word effectively work in us this morning, renewing our minds and transforming our hearts and lives. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now again, the Apostle Paul has been speaking to the Colossians about the sufficiency of Christ. He's been speaking to us about the sufficiency of Christ. And he sets forth Christ in all his glory. And then, suddenly, he stops to tell the Colossians something about himself and something about his ministry. But he doesn't do that to take our eyes off of Christ. He does it to help us understand about the completeness of the message that they had first heard when the gospel was preached to them. Paul wants to tell these Colossians something about his ministry so that they will be confident that the message that they heard is not merely part of the truth, but it is the fullness of the truth. That Paul, through Epaphras, who first brought the gospel message to them, has not secretly kept something back from them that they needed in order to grow in their spiritual lives. And in doing so, Paul sets down important principles concerning the true believer's union with Christ. Uh, You will note the key phrase in this passage found in verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This morning I would like to point out three great truths, three great principles among many that we could look at, which Paul sets down in this passage. The first one is this, by virtue of our union with Christ, we share in Christ's sufferings. We share in Christ's sufferings. Uh, Paul teaches this truth in verses 24 and 25. And in particular, you see it in that odd-sounding phrase. Filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What in the world is Paul talking about? Filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. In Christ's afflictions. What is he saying? Well, first of all, Paul is asserting in that phrase that he is suffering for the sake of the Colossians, and by extension for all believers, and that he is supplementing in some way Christ's suffering. But still, what does that mean, supplementing Christ's sufferings? What does he mean? Filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Well, Very briefly, which is a meaningless phrase, by the way, (laughs) but very briefly, let's look at that phrase and and break it apart. First of all, let's look at the word lacking. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? What does Paul mean when he says that? Well, first of all, he does not mean that Christ's sacrifice was in any way insufficient. He does not mean that Christ's uh, atoning sufferings need to be augmented, need to be supplemented, need to be added to. He doesn't mean that at all. 
And how do we know that he doesn't mean that? Because he spent the first 23 verses of this chapter trying to convince us that Christ's sacrifice is totally sufficient, completely sufficient. And he didn't suddenly forget what he had been saying. The Apostle Paul didn't say one thing for 23 verses, and then it just slips his mind when he gets to verse 24. The Apostle Paul is not saying that Christ's sacrifice of atonement is somehow insufficient. Okay, then what is he saying? What does he mean? Again, when he says filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul means that the sufferings endured by the body of Christ, while Christ is now at the right hand of God. Okay, Christ, let me say it again. The sufferings endured by the body of Christ, while Christ is now at the right hand of God, are not yet done. And therefore, all believers participate in those sufferings. Remember, Jesus was God in the flesh. He had a human body like ours, and he suffered on our behalf in his earthly ministry. Christ, our Lord, is now at the right hand of God. His human body, Christ's human body, physically speaking, is no longer undergoing the curse of sin. His sacrifice is totally sufficient. But we... His body here, we, his body, we're still here. In this world where there is affliction and where there is persecution, and we, as his body, still suffer. And so the Apostle Paul, when he speaks of what is lacking in Christ's affliction, is speaking of the sufferings which we endure as the body of Christ, while our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, is at the right hand of God. Those sufferings do not add to Christ's atoning work on our behalf. Those sufferings do not add to some so-called treasury of merit. Those sufferings do not bring about atonement for our sins. But those sufferings are always part of the consequences of sin, uh, which we know Christ will not take away fully until the day of the final judgment. And the Apostle Paul says, I'm participating in those sufferings. Secondly, look at the phrase filling up. Filling up. What does Paul mean when he says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings? Again, he is not saying that Christ's sufferings are insufficient, and now he has to make up for it. So what is he saying? Turn to Acts chapter 9. Let's turn to Acts chapter 9. If you will look there, I think you will understand what Paul means here in Colossians 1. Now, you remember that before Paul was the apostle Paul, he was a Pharisee who hated Christians, who looked down on Gentiles, and who even despised Jews who were not zealous for their faith. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And Luke tells us in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, that even after the death of Stephen, Paul was still breathing out threatenings and murder against the church of Christ, against the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as you go down a few verses in verse 4, you will recall that one day this Saul, as as he is called here in in Acts chapter 9, this Saul, this Pharisee, was on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus to persecute more Christians. And we know what happened. The Lord Jesus Christ met him on the way. It was a very dramatic encounter with a blinding light, and Saul was knocked off his horse, and 
And when Christ met him, Christ said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Notice that he did not say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my disciples? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus is saying this to Saul because when you touch Christ's body, you touch Christ. When you lay your hands against the people of Christ, his body, you strike at Christ himself. And so Saul is said to by Christ, why are you persecuting me? As you persecute these, my disciples, you are persecuting me. You're touching my body. You're attacking my body. You're causing my body to undergo affliction and suffering. Now, notice what he says down in verse 15 and 16 of chapter 9. Actually, let's read beginning at verse 10. Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Remember, Paul lost his sight in that encounter with Christ in the blinding light. And I love Ananias' response here in verse 13. Back in verse 10, he's so eager. Here I am, Lord. He must have, wow, the Lord's speaking to me. Oh, I can't wait to hear what he has to say. And then it's verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. All right, so we have this faithful Christian named Ananias. He's told to go find Paul and to minister to him. As instructed, you know, go find Saul, Ananias. And Ananias is understandably frightened by this word. Lord, we've heard reports about Saul. I mean, we, we understand this man persecutes believers. Are you sure you want me to find him? And then the Lord says to Ananias in verses 15 and 16, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I am sure that Paul never forgot that encounter or the Lord's words to him through Ananias. He knew that though he had been an instrument of persecution of the Christians, that God had made him an instrument of blessings for believers and had appointed him to suffer on behalf of Christ and his disciples. And basically, Paul is telling the Colossians here, look, I have been appointed to suffer for you. I have been appointed to be your apostle. Why would I possibly not tell you some part of the truth that you need to know in order to grow in Christ? Remember, they were under assault from false teachers who were telling them that very thing. The gospel was good as far as it goes, 
but you need something more. We have the secret knowledge that you need in order to go deeper in your experience with God. And everything Paul is writing here in chapter 1 is meant to undermine uh, that claim by the false teachers. Why would I possibly not tell you some part of the truth that you need uh, in order to grow in Christ? I've been appointed to suffer on your behalf, Paul is saying. Surely if I'm going to suffer on your behalf, I'm going to tell you the whole truth. Where was Paul when he was writing these words? He was in prison in Rome. Paul is saying to them, I am suffering on your behalf. I'm not atoning for you. Christ has already done that. You're already reconciled, as we saw last week. But I am participating in the suffering of the body of Christ. And Paul doesn't just mean that for himself. Paul intends us to understand that we also, all of us who believe, we participate in the suffering of Christ. In Philippians 1, verse 29, verses 29 and 30, Paul tells us this, For it has been granted to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The Apostle Paul is reiterating that because we are united to Christ, because we are his body and he is our head, we join with him in the fellowship of his sufferings. We participate in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, Again, we do not atone by those sufferings, but we share with him in the fellowship of his suffering and our suffering. Uh, I think that the way we need to understand this idea is that in some sense, Paul is experiencing afflictions in the place of Jesus, uh, afflictions that Jesus otherwise would have endured were he here on earth. And by doing so, Paul is convinced that he is providing an example of endurance and faith that will encourage and be of benefit uh, to the Colossians. Uh, The key to this, again, is the concept of a spiritual union that exists between Christ and his people. Everything done to the body of Christ, everything done to the church, is done to Christ himself. In other words, the afflictions of Paul were the afflictions of Christ because of their spiritual union. So in a sense, the sufferings of Paul and of all Christians are simply the continuation of the world's hostility toward the Lord Jesus. Because of the brevity of his earthly life, Jesus did not bear the full brunt of the world's hatred and animosity. So we are the objects of it in his place. Listen, the world hated and afflicted Jesus without ceasing. Uh, But since he is not here, their arrows of persecution, meant especially for him, strike who instead? They strike us instead. They strike his followers instead. And by virtue of our spiritual union and our identity with him, as well as our commitment to him, we endure the persecution and affliction which he otherwise would experience if he was still here walking this earth. What the world believes is lacking in his suffering, we can say, we fill up 
we bear the afflictions which are still intended for him. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And as Mark 13, verse 13 states, you shall be hated by all men for my name's sake. Uh, John Piper has an interesting take on this. He, he, uh, he shows a, 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 an interesting aspect of this that I think is worth sharing. Uh, in his well-known book, Desiring God, he explains that Paul's sufferings complete Christ's afflictions not by adding to their worth, but by extending them to the people they were meant to save. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, John Piper says, is not that they were deficient in worth, as though they could not sufficiently cover the sins of all who believe. What is lacking is that the infinite value of Christ's afflictions is not known and trusted in the world. So the afflictions of Christ are lacking in the sense that they are not seen and known and loved among the nations. They must be carried by the ministers of the word. And those ministers of the word complete or fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ by extending them to others. So according to John Piper, what is lacking then is in Christ's afflictions is not propitiation, but presentation. In other words, the sufferings of Jesus fully satisfied the wrath of God, but there is lacking a personal presentation by Christ himself to the nations of the world. And God's answer to this lack is to call the people of Christ, people like Paul, to make a personal presentation of the afflictions of Christ to the world. In doing this, he says, we fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We finish what they were designed for, a personal presentation to the people who do not know about their infinite worth. The amazing thing about this text is how Paul envisions himself and others filling up this lack in the flesh, in the flesh, in, 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 in the body of this flesh. In other words, God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. And our calling is to make the afflictions of Christ real for people by the afflictions we experience in bringing them the message of salvation. And since Christ is no longer on the earth, he wants his body, the church, to reveal his sufferings in its sufferings. Uh, it's a very interesting uh, perspective, and I believe there's a lot of truth to that. The point is this. The calling 
of Christians, the calling of Christians, you and you and I, our calling is to willingly and joyfully endure suffering for the sake of Christ and his kingdom, for the sake of Christ and his body. In this way, we are seen to be his own. In this way, others see him through us in his love for sinners. Now, there are several things we need to learn from this. And the first one is this. No suffering, no affliction endured by a Christian is ever meaningless. It may seem that way at times, but it's not. Uh, You remember that from under the altar, the martyrs in the book of Revelation chapter 7 cry out to the Lord, how long? And their death and their affliction is considered precious in his sight, we are told. Precious in his sight. We must never forget, church, that our afflictions, our suffering is precious in the sight of the Lord because our affliction, as those who believe in Christ, is now part of the fellowship of his suffering. Nor is any affliction endured by a Christian purposeless. We need to understand this. No affliction endured by a Christian is ever without purpose. Every affliction is designed by God to not only bring glory to himself, but also to conform us further to the image of Christ. God is working all things together. Romans 8, 28 and 29 tells us, the good and the evil, which will, would include every affliction for this glorious purpose. Now, because suffering is necessary and certain, a certain part of the Christian life, we must take care to minister to those who are afflicted, and especially to those who are persecuted for the sake of Christ. Why? Because when we see a brother or sister in Christ persecuted for the sake of the gospel, under the hand of affliction, we are seeing with our own eyes the sufferings of the body of Christ. And we cannot be apathetic about that. We must not be apathetic about that. We cannot be indifferent about that. We cannot but be concerned to minister to the one who is participating in the affliction of Christ. Because the reality is, their suffering is our suffering as well. I remember thinking after the heartbreaking church shooting several weeks ago, uh, remember the one in Texas, that that could have been us. How many of you thought that? Right? That could have been us. Right? That could have been our church. And then I read a brief article. It may have been on the Desiring God website. I can't remember where I saw it. Or who wrote it? It's driving me crazy that I can't remember that. Um, uh, in the article, the author, the author pointed out uh, that that was a very common reaction. It was, it was by a, a Christian writer, and he said that was a very common reaction by Christians. Wow, that could have been us. But then he said something else that really hit home. He said that the reality is it was us. It was us. It is us. When one in the body suffers, the whole body suffers. Their affliction is our affliction. Their grief is our grief. Their heartbreak is our heartbreak. And so we are obligated to bear one another's burdens. 
any way that we can. It follows then that one other thing that we learn in this passage is that we must prepare to suffer ourselves. Christ warned his disciples that if they treat the master that way, will they not also treat the disciples likewise? We just read that. He told his disciples to prepare for suffering. Paul has told us to prepare for suffering. We must expect affliction in our Christian experience. Christ has told us that we will experience it. We must not be surprised. Are we prepared to suffer? I don't know that we are. I don't know that many Christians here in America are prepared to suffer. One of the responsibilities uh, we have, uh, the, the, the elders here, is to prepare you to suffer for Christ. And that's an awesome thing. Uh, because we have lived in a day when it has not cost us very much to be Christians. Amen? It has not really cost us all that much to be Christians. And so, church, I say it solemnly. I expect there to be a day. And that day is coming sooner rather than later. A day when people right here, right now, in this congregation, will be called in this land, here in America, not some far-off place where persecution is the norm, but this land to suffer for Christ in ways that we have not had to suffer before. And by God's grace, I pray that we will be prepared for that day so that we will be able to give a good account of ourselves in the day of the Lord. I mean, we must seriously prepare to take our stand to witness for Christ and to suffer for his sake uh, when he calls us to. Because we are united to him, and therefore we share in his sufferings. Amen? A second great principle of this passage is this. The gospel plan is a revealed truth. It is a mystery made known by God. Look at verses 26 and 27, where Paul speaks of the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The gospel plan is an open secret. It's a revealed truth, formally a mystery, formally hidden. It is something that has now been made known by God. Paul speaks of the mystery, the mystery that has been hidden from the past ages and generations, a mystery which has been made known now among the Gentiles. And, and let me just say before we go on right now, Paul is contrasting, I guess, two ideas of mystery here. Paul knew, as I said before, that there were these uh, false, teachers, inf false teachers infiltrating the Colossian church who were teaching the Colossians that they had a mystery. These teachers, they had a mystery, a secret, a secret knowledge, a, a secret code, so to speak, that they, the Colossians, needed to know if they were going to have a deeper knowledge and experience of God. 
And the Apostle Paul here is essentially saying, well, I have a mystery too, but it's not a secret. It's not something that only a few people know about. He's basically saying that the mystery is not mysterious in the sense that only a few of the initiated, like these false teachers, can understand it. This mystery is an open secret. This is what Paul is saying to the Colossians. Now, understand, church, that in the Bible, a mystery is not, you know, it, it's, again, it's not some uh, secret code. It's not something that needs to be solved or unraveled by the intelligence and the reasoning of man. In the Bible, when the Bible speaks of a mystery, it is speaking of something that we could not have known ever unless God revealed it. And if God doesn't reveal it, then it will remain hidden until he does. Uh, In fact, Paul gives us a definition of mystery right here in these verses. He says it's something that has been hidden in past ages, but which has now been revealed. I mean, that's it right there. That's what a mystery is in the writing and the thinking of Paul. (coughs) Something that was once concealed, but has now been revealed. And the Apostle Paul says, I have been given a stewardship to preach that mystery, that open secret, that revealed truth to the Gentiles. It's not a secret teaching, Paul says. It's a proclaimed truth that would not have been known unless God had willed to reveal it. And then he goes on to say in verses 28 and 29 that the goal of his preaching of that ministry, of that mystery, is that you and I would be complete in Christ. Verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature or complete in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. God called Paul to this amazing task and God equipped him and strengthened him powerfully for this task. And again, he's saying to the Colossians, if my job is to preach that mystery, and my goal is to make sure that you are complete in Christ, why would I have held something back that you needed to know in order to be complete in Christ? That, that's really his implied argument here to the Colossians. Don't listen to these false teachers. False teachers. They're lying to you. They don't have some secret, deeper teaching that you need to know everything you need has been proclaimed to you and it's all in christ it's all in christ in church today there are many who tempt us to go elsewhere than the word of god to find the true mystery of spiritual life and when we are so tempted we must respond in remembrance of paul's words to the colossians god has given us everything that we need to be fed and to be built up and to be complete in Christ in his word and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We don't need to look at anything else. We don't need to look at something additional. The Apostle Paul reminds us that we are complete in Christ and he has given us the fullness of the gospel we need in order to walk in Christ. As Peter said Everything we need for life and for godliness. 
has been given to us in Christ and in the knowledge of him. Amen? Now, let me remind you in passing that it's, it's, a, it's a very special thing that the Apostle Paul was appointed to preach this word. I mean, Paul, the Jew, the Pharisee, the one who hated Gentiles, who hated Christians. He, he is the one appointed to be the apostle to the Gentiles. I mean, think of the consequences, church. Humanly speaking, if it weren't for God's having appointed the apostle Paul to be the preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul's the one, the Jew, the hater of Christians, who was appointed to bring us to Christ. And I have to tell you, it's an enormous blessing to me to think that this man, this man Paul, who would not have wanted to have fellowship with me, this man who would not in fact have had fellowship with me as a Christian or as a Gentile because of his Pharisaical belief, who would probably have wanted to imprison me or even kill me, he is the one who was appointed to bring me to Christ through the preaching of the gospel. I mean, not directly, but by extension. I mean, we all trace our salvation back to uh, Paul's proclamation of the gospel. Amen? I mean, that's a blessed thing, isn't it? God works in such unexpected ways that Paul, the Jew of Jews, becomes the preacher of grace to the Gentiles. And that's something that ought to cause us to praise God. And that leads us to a third and final thing as we close. Another meaningless preacher phrase. I would point uh, to this in verse 27. Paul tells us there uh, in verse 27 what the content of the mystery is. He's been given this mystery to preach, this open secret, the thing that God has revealed. And what is it? That mystery teaches us that our hope is in union with Christ. Our hope, our hope of glory, our hope of everlasting life, our hope of everything that redemption and reconciliation and atonement was designed uh, to provide, all of that hope resides in our union with Christ. I mean, look at Paul's phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And Paul is saying in verse 27, the revealed secret that I have been given a commission to preach (coughs) is that Christ in you, my Gentile friends, is the hope of glory. Christ in you and Christ for you is the hope of glory. You, you Gentiles who are apart from the promises, you Gentiles who are apart from the covenant, who have no part in the preaching of the prophets or the hearing of the law of Moses. Christ in you, in you, you Gentiles, is the hope of glory. Christ has been revealed to you. That is the message that the Apostle Paul has for us. Union with Christ, church, is our only hope of glory, the only hope we have of sharing Christ's glory for all eternity. There is no other place where we can go to find the ultimate fulfillment of our salvation. You know, if I thought for a moment that this life was all there was, or all that there ever would be, I would probably fall immediately and irretrievably into utter despair. 
How many of you have ever heard a song? It goes back, I think, to the 1950s. It was sung by Peggy Lee. How many of you even know who Peggy Lee is? Oh, good. Okay. You, yes, okay, good. <laughs> oh, there's Marie. Yes, of course. She was a very famous, popular, and excellent singer. She sang a song called Is That All There Is? Anybody remember Is That All There Is? It's a very, really ungodly song. It's a, it's a woman singing about all these different experiences of her life and being utterly disappointed by them and saying, is that all there is? If that's all there is, let's keep dancing. Right? And, and, and in the final refrain, uh, someone says to her, well, if that's what you believe, why don't you just end it all? And her response is no, because that would just be one more final disappointment when she gets to wherever she thinks we go, and we'll have to say, is that all there is? That's a terrible, <laughs> terrible uh, um, worldview. But that's the only worldview anybody can have who does not believe what we are talking about this morning, right? What hope do they, they have? Whatever hope they think they have is a false hope. It's no hope at all. And again, if, if, if any of us thought for a moment that this life was all there was or ever would be, uh, we would have to fall into utter despair. I mean, if this world is as good as it gets, I mean, I'd probably be popping pills, getting drunk, maybe even pulling the trigger, or finding some way to escape as quickly and painlessly as possible the futility and the meaninglessness of this life. But I have hope. We have hope. We are confident that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as 2 Corinthians 4.17 assures us. We have hope. We are confident that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, as, as Romans 8.18 declares. We have hope. We are confident that when Christ, who is our life, appears, we also will appear with him in glory, as Colossians 3 verse 4 asserts. Our hope is in the experience of future glory. In, in some sense, in some way, this life and its pain and deprivation and disappointment and ugliness will yield to an unyielding and eternal glory. Amen? That is our hope. But on what grounds do we have such hope? What makes our hope any different from the religious fantasies and the pipe dreams of so many others? Well, the answer is found in what Paul says here in verse 27. Uh, but to get there, to see how Paul got, let's just go back again for a moment to verse 25 and follow his thought. At the close of verse 24, Paul mentioned the church, Christ's body, of which he says in verse 25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And feel free to insert your name or, or, or the name of this church in the place of the you that Paul says there. <clears throat> Which is a reference to the Colossians, of course, in its original context. 
God enlightened, empowered, and entrusted Paul with a message for them and for us. I mean, this is the meaning of the stewardship given him. He asked, his task was to make the word of God fully known. But what specifically is the word that Paul is determined to make fully known? He answers the question in verse 26. It is that mystery, which we talked about, concerning the salvation of the Gentiles, which until the time of Christ was hidden, but has now been revealed to the saints. Right? We just looked at that. But, and hear this, it's more than merely that the Gentiles would be saved. It's more than merely that the Gentiles would be saved. That in itself was no mystery. The Old Testament spoke often of of Gentile salvation. So that's really not the mystery. No, the mystery is that they would be saved as fellow citizens, as Ephesians 2.19 says, and fellow heirs, members of the same body, as Ephesians 3.6 says. The mystery, um, yes, the mystery long hidden, but now revealed is that Gentiles and Jews are no longer two, but rather one new man, as Ephesians 2.15 declares, equal in every way in Christ. And don't take this lightly or think it unimportant. Paul refers in verse 27 to the riches of the glory of this mystery. The riches of the glory of this mystery. There is a glory, there's a divine splendor, a radiant majesty in this truth that is indescribably rich and unfathomably deep. Why? I mean, what what could possibly be deserving of such lavish language? And here is Paul's answer. The mystery is that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, is now in you Gentiles who believe in him. He lives and abides in you, not merely with you or beside you or above you and below you, but in you. And this, says Paul, is the hope of glory. Christ living in you is the ground and the foundation of And cause of your hope that you one day will enter into the fullness of divine glory. Christ living in you is the assurance. Trumping all evidence to the contrary. We all struggle. Right? But him living in us is the assurance that you and I will share in the glory that is to come. And that glory is promised in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, in Romans 8, 18, in Colossians 3, verse 4, among many other verses that we could cite, will be ours because the Christ who died and rose again to secure it on our behalf lives in us now and forever. But remember this. Christ is not simply the reason we can hope for glory. Christ is himself that glory. The glory for which we long, the glory for which we have been predestined, the glory that makes all suffering and pain and disappointment in this life unworthy of comparison is the person and presence of Jesus Christ himself. He is our glory. Being with him, to know him, to see him, to relish and rejoice in his beauty is the glory for which we hope. 
forgiveness of sins and justification and adoption and all the other blessings of the gospel, these are great and glorious, but only so far as they make it possible for us to experience the permanent presence and vision and splendor of Jesus himself. John Piper put it this way. If you could have heaven, he asked this question, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? If Christ was not there. And I hope you said no, can say no to that question. Our hope is Christ, period. He is our exceeding great reward. And he lives in us now. Not figuratively or symbolically. He lives and abides in us now. And this is the ground and the assurance we have for the glory of being with him and enjoying him forever. Now, people usually make one of two mistakes concerning this. They either seek the wrong hope or they seek the right hope, but in the wrong way. The only right hope is the hope of glory, which is Christ. The only way to that hope is through Christ. And the Apostle Paul says here, Christ in you is the hope of glory. The Holy Spirit uniting you to Christ is your hope. 18th century preacher Roland Hill once said, Unless you live in Christ, you are dead to die. You are dead to die. And those who are here today who do not know Christ, who have never trusted in him, who have not repented of sin, who do not walk with him, who do not love him, you are dead to die. There is no hope for you. No other hope for you. Whatever other hopes that you have or think you have for forgiveness and for everlasting life are vain. They are empty. They are meaningless. They'll never be fulfilled. The apostle makes it clear that we must seek the right hope in the right way. Christ is that hope and Christ is the way. How do you know that you have truly found that hope? How do you know that you are truly united with him? Well, first of all, he has implanted his love in your heart. And that love overflows, and you, and you begin to love him. As we sang before, my Jesus, I love you, right? We sang that, right? <laughs> and I believe, I, I'm almost sure about this. I, I remember reading this years ago. That hymn was written. I believe, by a 15-year-old boy shortly after becoming saved, shortly after finding Christ, after being saved, by 15 years old. But, you know, that's what happens. He implants his love in your heart, and that love overflows, and you begin to love him. You begin to love him more than the world. Christians find their enjoyment, their satisfaction in him. And the more that a person is satisfied with Christ, the more that Christian will find his satisfaction in pleasing him. Amen? 
If you find your satisfaction in him, it is a mark, it is a sign, it is evidence that the Spirit has united you to Christ. He has brought all Christ's benefits to bear for you. If you have never trusted in him, the only hope you have, Paul says, is Christ in you. Christ in you. The only hope you have is to cast yourself upon the Lord, to go to him, to rest in him, to receive him as the only way of salvation, to receive him as God's plan for redeeming you from sin, and to trust in him and to walk with him. And as we do this, church, we find that Christ has worked faith and repentance in us because we have been united to him. And that faith and that repentance is a reflection of the fact that we have been united with him. Amen? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word this morning. And first of all, Lord, we do pray, if there be anyone here today who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. I pray, Father God, we pray, Father God, that you would draw that one to yourself, that you would open that one's heart to believe the gospel, the good news that there is forgiveness, there is everlasting life and everlasting glory in Christ, through faith in Christ. Open that one's heart to believe and to be saved, we pray. And for all of us, Father God, who do believe, may we be encouraged this morning to know that our union with Christ is real. Our union with Christ assures us and guarantees us that we one day will share in his glory forever. The Old Testament saints... Uh, they, they would not believe if they were told what we have today. Uh, that one day you would not dwell in a temple made with hands, but that you would dwell in a people. They couldn't have imagined that. They couldn't have fathomed that. And yet that's, that's our reality today. May we never lose sight of that. And may we rejoice in that always. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.